0: Hi friends, welcome to Why We Care. I'm your host, Stefan and I started this podcast because I realized that most people know how to reduce their carbon footprints, but few know how to directly help protect nature and biodiversity. So together, we'll explore our relationship with the natural world and learn how we can take better care of Mother Earth in our everyday life. In this week's episode, I'm chatting with my friend Jesse Adler, a biomolecular scientist and materials innovation researcher at Pengaya. Jessie is one of my favorite people. She's one of the most enthusiastic, smartest, overall just wonderful human beings I know. We spoke about materials innovation and what, in her view, are the most pressing issues in terms of materials that we need to find alternatives for, as well as about biomimicry and how so much of what we design as humans have been inspired by nature, including, for example, planes. We also discussed the cyclical nature of the world we live in and how the concept of waste actually doesn't exist in nature. Aside from her job at Tengaya, Jessie is also a Future Materials Research Fellow at the Jan van Eyck Academy in the Netherlands. Her research focuses on finding replacements for artificial colorants in fungi. So we spoke about the makeup collection she created using pigments extracted from various types of fungi and how she approaches this as a collaboration rather than ex- an exploitative extractive practice. She shared her tips for ethical foraging and also how she practices mindfulness to connect with the wider ecosystems we're a part of. I've had bits of this conversation with Jessie over the past few years and it is so nice to have finally recorded it. I hope you'll find it as exciting as we did. Don't forget to check out the show notes to dive deeper and also to follow us on Instagram. Thank you for caring and sending you lots of love. Hi, Jesse. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Hey, hey. Could you start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what you do?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, hello out there. I'm Jesse Adler. I am a person whose ro- place in this world is difficult to describe in just a few words, so bear <laughs> with me. So, I am a biomolecular scientist and interdisciplinary designer working at the intersection of science innovation and sustainability to create um materials that actually help our planet mm, help mitigate the climate crisis <laughs> and not uh add to it so that is quite fun um in particular i that kind of manifests as i work um as the materials innovation researcher at Pangaea on the R&D side working on the chemistry of everything that goes into and onto our materials. So whether that be our um, fabrics or non-fabrics and finishes and colors and prints and everything that goes in there, which is a really eye-opening experience um, and awesome. And I recently graduated from MA Material Futures where I was learning how to channel my science background into design and into the creation of future sustainable materials. And now I am continuing my research that I began in my thesis that I'm sure we'll touch on later as a future materials research fellow at the Jan van Eyck Academy in Maastricht in the Netherlands.
0: Amazing. Wow. That's (laughs) such a good intro. And I feel like, yeah, we were touching on this before we started recording. I just feel like there's so much we could cover on this uh in this episode. (laughs) Yeah, so many subjects to explore. So hopefully we'll get to some of these and then we can um maybe deep dive (laughs) later. Um but thank you for that. Yeah. Um and so my the first question I wanted to ask, which I think is kind of linked with Mostly what you do at Pengaya, but also probably uh, what you studied is, in your view, what are the most pressing issues in terms of materials that need to, that need replacement, and what are the most exciting innovations coming to replace them? And I think could be materials, or yeah, processes, or chemicals, or anything
1: that you think is relevant to mention. Totally. So, so many things. <laughs> so many things that need replacement, or So I think I would kind of want to answer this in like two directions. The first one being, I don't hate plastic, Mm -hmm. which is like really like quite a daring thing to say in our world, I guess. (laughs) But like what I do hate is the um, mismatched application of which we've kind of put plastic forth. So for example, plastic has been really essential in bringing a, For technologies, even in like health sciences. So like certain transplant organs or surgery systems or medications or all of these things, like that was such a huge enabler. And I think that that was when there are moments there where it's used correctly and it's used properly. It should be used in a time and a place where it will, like if it never breaks down, it should be used in an application where it's never where they need it to never break down. Like there's this misalignment of the materials life cycle and properties with the application that's put into. So when I say like, I don't mind plastic, I mean it in the sense of like, when it's used properly in the correct place, it's it's a really big enabler and we need it. The reverse being like, when it has uh, a misaligned application, like using uh, polyethylene plastic for uh, poly bags, that is infuriating, mm-hmm. <laughs> that doesn't make any <laughs> sense. Like this is gonna last forever, why would you put it in a tiny, tiny bag that is someone's gonna bin afterwards? Like that makes no sense, that is aggravating, that needs replacement. The other direction of it, which is what a lot of my work on Pangea, uh, in Pangaea focuses on is um, water repellents, which are the uh, chemical coatings or as we call it uh, impregnations, which, fascinating concept that that's how we call it crazy (laughs) yeah Um, right like so like that could be like a whole like yeah Yeah. totally because like I was in these meetings and they're like yeah it's an impregnation thing and I'm like are we talking about the same thing
0: (laughs) are you sure what do you mean
1: right (laughs) yeah okay as it turns out and like I knew Mm -hmm. nothing about this coming into it and have just been um unbelievably amazed and horrified by what I've Mm -hmm. learned but Mm -hmm water repellents are pretty much used in everything from our clothing to our surroundings to our cookware. It's, it's really wow. everything. So one of the biggest scary ones that I'm sure everyone's heard of is Teflon. Mm-hmm. And like there's the whole Teflon scare when people started to understand and realize that it was a brand name for a type of uh, non-stick agent that's in a class of things called uh, fluorocarbons. And so the we, these go by the acronyms PFCs, PFOA, PFAS. There's a lot of them, but like the general category of PFCs. And these fluorocarbons are known as forever chemicals because they get into our waterways and um, are not only bioaccumulative, meaning that they keep building up over time and building up within the bodies of biological organisms, but they're massive biohazard potential <laughs> and they're wow. persistent. So they're persistent and bioaccumulative, which if you're looking on the safety data sheets of some of a material, which I do a lot, um, <laughs> like there's like the hazard warnings for bioaccumulative and persistent materials, which is always like stay away from this, <laughs> which is so. Cool. so PFCs have been shown to be carcinogenic, causing, numerous types of cancer and other health hazards and are just generally terrifying. Mm -hmm. The reality is, is we didn't know about this and consumer facing people are only starting to wake up to this. The current options on the table of commercial wise of what can we do to avoid PFCs? The answer is there is a lot, but not a lot. And so some of them are Mm, the reality is, is nothing is going to perform the same way that a PFC-based mm-hmm. repellent will. So if you have the expectations that it's going to perform the same, you will always be disappointed. Same goes for so many other these emerging materials. But right now, industry standard, you typically have either a fossil fuel-based plastic replacement. So those are um, polyurethane water repellents or acrylic-based water repellents or inorganic versions, which are silicone based, which I have mixed feelings about. So we'll leave those out for a minute. And then the polyurethane ones frustrate me because if you're introducing a polyurethane, if you're, mm, I'll use their word. If you're impregnating a bio-based textile, such as lyocell, cotton, mm, even hemp or something like that, wool, if you're impregnating that bio-based fiber with the polyurethane, are you blocking it from being further biodegraded at the end of its life? How does that impact the lifetime of that material that started out so well? You know, and so that's a question that kind of haunts me because no one has an answer so far. But every time I'm on a call with a com- chemical company about that, I ask them and they're like, yeah, we have no idea. <laughs> so, so that's super scary and that needs replacing. Wow. And part of my work at Pegaya is to, develop and um, scale those replacements so very exciting that we are working on some bio based replacements gearing towards um, increased bio based content hopefully very soon up until 100%. That'll be awesome. So the ideal is to have a bio based water repellent on a bio based textile and kind of have that pairing make more sense, which would be great and then um, also looking in the landscape towards mm, what are known as like dry processes. So the other, the polyurethane impregnations are kind of a wet process, if you imagine it, you know, you're putting some sort of chemicals on it, but, and then having it be like dipped in, but the dry processes, uh, at least the one I'm working with is using plasma lasers and um, natural gases to change the surface chemistry. So that will be a process that could radically change The environmental impact of these treatments. So that was a super long answer to. I think these need (laughs) to be placed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but wow, that that's super interesting, and I feel like there's so much in there. there. But it's yeah, it's crazy to think that. So this um, basically those, if I understood well, those PFCs are used as their water repellents, but they're used on pretty much everything, right? So like for example, a cotton t-shirt would have some of that treatment as well. It
1: can. Yeah. There there are some that like if something is um if there is some sort of element of also stain resistance is a type of mm-hmm. water repellency. Cause what it really is is it's repelling water-based stains. Mm-hmm. So like all of that spectrum of something not sticking to your fabric or not sticking to your frying pan is a form of a repellent treatment.
0: Mm-hmm okay and it's something that we don't really you don't really think about like especially I think with well I guess with everything but for example if you take the example of fashion you would think about what fabric you buy but you wouldn't even think about the fact that there's those chemicals that are being added to perform for, for the garment to perform yeah yeah, to yeah. Perform in ways that you're maybe not even aware um, right
1: they don't no. tell you <laughs> no <laughs> they, don't to, they don't want us to know and that's yeah the problem is they like keep it in the shadows. So then we don't know.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for bringing light into this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so that's actually um, a nice segue into another question that I wanted to ask about um, biomimicry, Mm. which I first heard about uh, through you and the work you were, we were doing uh, together or like when I was working at Pengaya with you. Um, So could you explain what biomimicry means? Because from, from, you're the answer you gave before I feel like biomimicry would be a more natural solution to find um those types of um how would you call them processes or like mm. you could find water repellency in nature and then kind of try to imitate that into something else right so that's a good co- exactly, I understand it absolutely
1: spot on and that is one of okay. the examples that I wanted to bring up oh
0: okay <laughs> so
1: like you're already there but I'm so <laughs> honored that I like that I showed you this because that makes me feel so great. Like I to <laughs> share it with you because I think it's the coolest thing, and I'm so happy mm-hmm. that you also do that um biomimicry is this really incredible way of learning from nature. And it's actually the word and the categorization of this type of work as biomimicry is a little bit newer than the work it's is wait, sorry, it's a lot newer than the work itself. Cause
0: mm-hmm.
1: we've been using we've been mimicking the way that nature does things for thousands of years you know that's like the initial learnings is to observe observe and learn from nature and then adapt that learning into some sort of human process tool or material and it's just this um the concept of considering it biomimetic design is much newer in the sense that we can all like have a name to talk about it. But there are so many things that happen already like this before we called it that. So for example, planes. Planes are an incredible example of biomimicry where um, I don't know how the rest of the world learned about planes, but the way that in the US that I was taught about planes (laughs) was from the Wright brothers and Amelia Earhart and things like that. But the Wright brothers were avid bird watchers. And so it was by studying the way that the birds took off and landed and their wings and their structures that they could say, huh, I wonder if we could mimic the way that birds fly for humans. And, you know, now we have planes, (laughs) however many years later. And another really cool one I thought was a gecko paws, like -hmm. their little feet have these tiny, tiny hairs. So you see a gecko climbing all over a wall. And it's just like so gravity defying, like, how the hell do you do that? And by studying that, they were able to find that there are these super tiny curved hairs in the paws of the gecko feet. And that's kind of what inspired Velcro between Mm -hmm. that and like the burrs that grow from plants, which Mm -hmm. is the same design, that curved hook, tiny hair, that like filament is what created Velcro. And that's huge. Wow. Um, Uh and then the one that you mentioned as well is a lot of, uh, companies are looking for alternative water repellents and looking to nature for solutions. And a big biomimicry example here is lotus leaves. So looking at the structure of a lotus leaf, which is, um, highly, what's the word? Not smooth, (laughs) (laughs) Um, super, super rough. uh So, and that creates this, uh, almost frictionless structure because there is no uh, single point of interaction that it has all of these surfaces the super rough surface is able to uh, prevent a water droplet on like a super magnified level from wetting the surface Mm -hmm. which is crazy so like Mm -hmm. and like I do this too like I whenever I'm washing my vegetables after the supermarket I'll notice which ones have leaves that are like very hydrophobic so mm-hmm. like I liked uh Cavallo Nero super hydrophobic right and when you wash it you're, like, <laughs> the water just beads off or, yeah like, this leaf and you're just like it's crazy it's so cool so like those are definitely, yeah, some great biomimicry examples
0: Mm-hmm. okay amazing i love that thank you for sharing and yeah I, I do find this very exciting i remember the first time i heard about it i was like wow <laughs> and yeah it's interesting that it's it, it seems like it's kind of a new concept but as you're saying actually we've been doing that for so many years if not hundreds of years um and it's just now that we have a name for it but it's yeah it's pretty cool totally And then in your view, are there some other, and I feel like we might have covered this already, but are there any other kind of main issues that you think could be tackled by solutions inspired by the natural world? So you
1: gave a few examples, but are there any others? Mm, Definitely. I think um, the concept of waste is very human and annoyingly human. Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, If we were to look to nature and try to figure out what nature does about waste you would quickly realize that in nature there is no waste there's only ecosystem (laughs) only cycles you know and i someone said this like a couple years back and it really just stuck with me and i think that's such a like a true answer to this question about like if we want to really look towards nature for a solution think about waste and how do we why do we think of waste as waste and not thinking of it thinking of it as a raw material for something else Because in nature, like, I spend a lot of my time studying fungi who are nature's great decomposers. When you see a rotting banana that looks disgusting and whatever, the fungus is like, oh, yes, dinner is served. (laughs) Yummy. Right? Right? And it doesn't, there is no waste. Mm -hmm. It is so um, ignorant and short-sighted of us to say, like, great, let me put it somewhere else. Because it's not in my field of vision. It doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And that's so unfair and so short-sighted. And I hate it. <laughs> so if we can learn from nature, um, which kind of I think the other one being working more as an ecosystem and functioning more as an ecosystem where we cultivate positive symbiotic relationships, both with um the other people around us, the nature around us, or just our general environment. And To function as an ecosystem, you need to consider that each party within that cycle and within that system is important and brings value. And so often we just think of even um, non living materials. So, those that come from fossil fuels, like or uh, minerals, or, you know, my desk, my laptop, right? Considering those as an important part of your ecosystem can really change the way that you empathize with your surroundings and with the world around you and all how our consumption needs to change and how it impacts the rest of it all Uh like not living in our own little silos
0: (laughs) wow I love yeah that makes so much sense and it's so I think poetic as well it's like we even if we because we tend to see our world and humans and then nature as like two separate things but actually we've just created this kind of artificial ecosystems but anyway they are still ecosystems and um yeah I think that makes so much sense and the waste bit as well what you said about waste it's just like mind-blowing right <laughs> when you start seeing waste as not something that you need to just you know turn your to look away from but what what can make what can we make with that and how can we reuse that and and what purpose can it serve that's beautiful I love it
1: I wish I came up with it originally, but I'll give credit to whoever, <laughs> whoever remembers that they said it first. And then,
0: okay, that's also a nice segue into um, what I wanted to ask next, which, next, which is um, that aside from your job at Pengaya, you also conducted your own research at Central Saint Martins. So could you expand on um, what you did exactly and the concept of alchemical mycology? So what does that mean? And what did you do?
1: totally totally yeah ooh it was that was a fun one so mm-hmm. um at central st martins i was on the ma material futures course as i touched on before and the the course is almost entirely self directed the so in your final year of the course it's a two year course in your final year you are asked to just do you know like in your first year you have a couple briefs and in your second year they say like great what do you have for us? What do you want to do here? What drives you? What, what do you want to create? What do you want to change? You know, where do you want to be? And that was a super tough question for me. And I wanted to create an impact through my work and use materials to bring about a better future, um, environmentally speaking, but also just to make sure that there is a future. (laughs) And um, (laughs) One of the things that I had noticed um, in my work at Pangaea was that there are, I have a very privileged position where I can see the landscape of innovation and materials and see where things are very crowded and there's a lot of work being done. And also those spaces that are really in need of something, in need of innovation, in need of someone to dedicate some time there. And one of those spaces I saw was... uh, sources of renewable colorants that come in a variety of colors beyond that of what we can achieve from plants so natural dyes have been around centuries we love natural dyes we've got plant dyes we've got um animal dyes uh microorganism dyes and uh mineral dyes and those i would one two three four yes so those are the categories of natural dyes and most of those are renewable. So the only non-renewable natural dye that we have or colorant I'll say, um, is are the mineral colorants. And the unfortunate part about that is within the mineral colorants, we get some of the more unique colors that we can't achieve through plant-based dyes, animal-based dyes, and for now microbial-based dyes. But I'll touch on the microbe ones later. Um, <laughs> so I was looking for sources of color that kind of fall outside of those categories. And this is about the time that I was starting the second year of the masters. I had a research question. I knew I wanted to be hanging out with color, finding sources of color, innovating here. And at a similar time, I saw the movie Fantastic Fungi, started reading Entangled Life
0: Mm.
1: and had this moment like during the movie, I was like, wow, these are the craziest colored organisms I've seen in a long time. I wonder if we can harness that. And that kind of just became the outset of the research question. And I got Googling and ended up discovering that there is a absolute wealth of research into the subject. And by, by wealth of research, I don't mean the same of what we have available for plant dyes and plant colorants. Like that is a wealth. That is, a wealth. <laughs> this is like in the past 10 years, we have like maybe a couple hundred papers that are published. And my mm-hmm. research process very much stems from reading the scientific literature first because I've never studied fungi before. I have no idea how to work with them. I barely even knew how many types of fungi there are. And just so other people know, the uh, the study of fungi is called mycology, and it's a relatively new field. And people have been working with fungi forever, but this is like also similar to biomimicry. Now we have a name for it. So mycology itself uh, is quite emerging. And it's estimated that there are like a couple billion different species of fungi out there or wow. different types of fungi, right? And we so far have identified and studied maybe one percent mm. of those wow. species. So like that's insane. But then within that one percent, what we've already learned is just groundbreaking. It is mm-hmm. like the the discoveries are unbelievable. Unbelievable. So within that 1% is a subset of the work that's being done on pigments from fungi. And they're finding that these colors are not only performing um, at a much uh, higher, mm, at a much different level than many plant colorants can. So whether that's in terms of light fastness, um, binding to a substrate, so like the color fastness, we call it, the uh, shades in which they appear and all of these things, fungi are making some crazy splashes there. But the one of the coolest things I found about it was that, um, and I feel like you're going to love this one, <laughs> that the pigments themselves have so much more function mm-hmm. than just being a, a color. Because like, I believe that nature doesn't see beauty. Nature doesn't see aesthetics. Nature only sees function. So the reason this, pig, this fungus, let's say um, a lichen, uh, a yeast, a mold, a mushroom, whatever it may be, the reason it produces this pigment isn't because it thinks it looks cute. It's like, I want to, be, right? It does it for very specific functional reasons only. So some of these pigments, um, a couple that I've been studying from molds have been found not only to be beautiful red, orange, yellows, but are also anti-cancer, anti-tumor, antibacterial. It's insane. Wow! And so now they're not only being studied for their beauty as colorants, but their potential as pharmaceuticals or their potential uh, addition to flexible circuit boards so that they can be, could it be that they're conductive in electricity and we don't need to use a wire? Could we just use fungal pigments? The research is so cool. So I really love that. So that was a big learning for me. But ultimately, I've been working... um, through this project alchemical mycology so that's the mycology bit Um, but the alchemical coming from alchemy is um, a nod to the process by which I am coming to these discoveries and as a chemist it was really hard for me to step back from wanting to know all of the answers before I conduct an conduct an experiment because oftentimes I really like as I My training was to know the input materials, know exactly what reaction they're going to do, and then based on that, have the expected product yield. And if something goes awry, then you have an observation. But mm-hmm. it's much more alchemy-based to have your ideal end product and your start product and experiment with the ways that you're going to get from A to B. And kind of this um, more design-based uh, learning through making. And that kind of like discovery along the way felt much more uh, alchemical than it did chemical. <laughs> they kind of paired nicely there. It felt a little science-y, felt a little um designy. And I it's uh, manifested in a way that I've exhibited um some a makeup collection that I've created using the pigments I've extracted from various types of fungi. And so I've got some eyeshadows, some lipsticks, some eyeliners, some uh, skincare, tinted skincare. So a sunscreen, a serum, and trying to think if there's any of I forgot. No, that's br- mostly it. And now I'm working uh, to develop them into more paints. So I made an oil paint. Hopefully we'll be doing some screen printing soon and just kind of exploring the spectrum of where we can use color and how I can do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Wow, that's amazing. So well, yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm like a, a big fan of your research. Um, but yeah, I, I love when you tell me all about Shanghai because it's so exciting. <laughs> um but yeah, that's so so great. Again, I feel like there's so much to unpack. We could I feel like everything you mentioned, we could go on attention for like 20 minutes, like <laughs> deep dive into um a specific aspect of it. But maybe what would be um <clears throat> interesting is in the same way that you've mentioned, this um, water repellency is found in a lot of places that we don't even know about. Could you maybe touch on what pigments are or dyes or colorants? I don't really know if there is a significant difference between them, um, but what they are used for. So I guess they are found everywhere and everything, but maybe if you could give an overview of that. And also what is wrong with the ones we use now are they harming us or the planet, or maybe both, and in what, what ways? And I know that's the lot of the questions, so no, please forgive totally. <laughs> No, totally. Uh, but just I think it would be helpful to have a quick understanding of of uh, the situation.
1: Yeah. So wait, that's a great question. On the, I've had a I've had a troubling time trying to differentiate between pigments and dyes because there is a mm-hmm. scientific difference, but then it often gets kind of overlooked in the effort of having more synonyms. So uh, technically a dye is a colorant molecule that is soluble in water and a pigment is a colorant that is not soluble in water. So there are a lot of like other nuances to those categories, but like technically they're different, but like functionally we all use them as synonyms. But in my like thesis dissertation writing, I used colorant because I was like afraid of someone coming in and being like, well, it doesn't bind to water, does it? <laughs> but, <laughs> so, so far, so good. So like, I might use those interchangeably. And if anybody gets really bothered by that, forgive me. <laughs> <No> <laughs> difference. We're just not working with it at that moment. Um, so in the world of colorants, the ones that we think of as the brightest and boldest um, of the modern day are typically and wide, mostly widespread are the synthetic pigments. Those are the ones that come in the widest range of colors, the widest range of uh, hues, tones, performance characteristics. And when I say these kind of words, I'm talking about it in a very physical sense. So not necessarily something you see on your computer, which is very much a digital representation of color, but the physical world around us. So anything that you can touch. So definitely your clothes, your textiles, um your physical materials, so your plastics, your labels, your posters, anything that's printed, printed, dyed. Um, I don't know the right way to talk about the 3D ones that are like, I would say like extruded. <laughs> so like the, the colorant is mixed into it, it's extruded or it's painted or it's finished with that. Um, I'm trying, are there other ones? Definitely your cosmetics, all of your color cosmetics. A huge, huge one that we don't really think that much about is food. A lot of our food Mm -hmm. has coloring. And sometimes that coloring is natural. By and large, at least until very recently, most of it was synthetic, which is super scary. And even sometimes the synthetic colorant would be the same biomolecule as one derived from nature. But because it was too expensive or too X, Y, and Z to get it from nature we would create a synthetic analog from fossil fuels. So like all of the routes pointing towards fossil fuels as a source of colors and wow. Right. So scary. There were. And so between the fossil fuel based ones and the mineral based ones, there are a lot are, and were a lot of issues in terms of environmental and human safety. So some of these pigments are just literally toxic, <laughs> just literally toxic. Um, For example, like, and we know that many of these minerals are toxic, or at least we know this nowadays, like chromium, like you don't, or lead, lead white was a super popular paint. There's a reason why all of these paint companies had recalls of like, don't be using lead paint anymore. There's lead in the water. Why is this happening? Because too much lead super toxic. So mm-hmm. we were using that as a really great pigment. Um, A lot of famous painters uh, were exposed to these pigments and really fell ill because of it. There are some theories that say that part of the reason that Van Gogh um, had so many uh, struggles with his mental health as he did was because that he would lick the tip of his paintbrush and oh. he would ingest the toxic pigments <laughs> that he was working with. Wow. And right. Like if your body's not well, your brain's not well. So all of this. Together. I have
0: no idea. Wow. That sounds so crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Um,
1: there have been studies that also show that pigments in uh, this, these are from the U S that there were certain pigments in foods that were predisposing an entire generation, our generation of children to, be more likely to have or develop ADD or ADHD. And this, mm. it can trace it down to the freaking pigment. There are also people who are allergic to pigments. So certain mm-hmm. uh, red dye, blue dye, I had a friend who couldn't eat certain gummies that were red because, but could eat others because of the exact red dye within them. So there's a ton of problems there. They're also, as much as they can be toxic for us as humans, just as equally could be toxic for the environment when they're disposed of, because we mm, short-sightedly think great let's dump these into the water it'll be fine and this whole idea of wastewater treatment is super cool super interesting but also like crazy (laughs) in that we're like let's just dump it and so that can has huge ecosystem impact in so many different ways um but a lot of issues there and a lot of uses so by creating a new source of pigments or colorants, how might that enable us to reduce and hopefully replace our dependence on these non-renewable sources of color, whether they be mineral or or fossil fuel-based? Mm-hmm. Lots of reasons. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Wow. Yeah. Again, I feel like that's <laughs> quite a lot, but it's definitely helpful and um, to understand that yeah, the distinction. Um and yeah, makes sense why you're doing all that research. Totally. Uh, Love that. (laughs) Um so yeah, something else that you said um as part of your research, which I really loved, is that you I remember reading that um little description where you said that you'd collaborated with fungi to create the pigments, which I thought was pretty cool. And I think there's also there's something really important there about this idea of working with nature in a respectful way of of ensuring that it's centered around collaboration rather than exploitation which a lot of our um yeah i guess a lot of how we extract things from nature now is very exploitative and then also making sure that we leave something behind for others uh, when we're foraging for example um be that humans or animals so i was wondering if you could uh, speak to this a little, um, and maybe share any practices that you have put in place in your own work to ensure that the natural natural materials you use are collected ethically.
1: Oh, definitely. <laughs> um, to the first point about collaborating with fungi, I think mm. collaboration is um a way to describe mutual learning, and I don't know if the fungus is any learning anything from me, but I'm definitely learning <laughs> a lot from them. And uh-huh. I feel that the collaborative approach applies in the sense that it's um a responsive process and I am working with them learning from them trying to see how I can best utilize what they are already producing and then shaping my work around the natural organisms and the natural uh ways that they do things and hopefully they, they respond to me by, either creating that pigment, enabling me to extract that pigment in the ways that I hoped I could and working with me in the sense that they're able to supply the source of color through uh, maybe like a culture process. And by manipulating the uh, conditions of that culture, it's a feedback system. So if I'm changing the sugar content or the temperature or the light, they are responding back to me saying, we don't like this. Or, you know, or they say, great, when you do this, we're gonna only produce yellow pigments, not any red pigments. It's like, it's so awesome. We can work together on this and try to do this. Um, a friend of mine coined the word uh, co-design. And mm-hmm. I really, I think that applies here really well. Um, so in, in working with them, I also very much, want to make sure that I'm working in this respectful way that you touch on and to not exploit when I am extracting. And one of the things I've learned through this process was um, that actually Scotland has a huge uh, history of dying with lichens. And if you call it lichen or leachin, whatever it may be, lichens are a symbiotic organism. They're actually a composite organism that is part fungus and part uh, what we call a photobiont. So it is the ph- a photosynthetic organism. So that could be a cyanobacteria or an algae or something like that. And maybe it's a couple of each or whatever it is, but it's a composite organism of both. So lichens are super, super cool and have been used in textile dyeing for hundreds of years. Like even the Romans were found to have been using lichens. But in Scotland, they had this, in, they were in love with it. They found this specific lichen. It made a gorgeous, gorgeous purple. And they were like, we got this. We're going to open up the factory. We're going to forage everything. And lo and behold, the lichen start disappearing because they exploited it. And that story has really stuck with me and has formed the way that I'm approaching this process. So my goal is when I am extracting something from nature, my goal is to extract it only from nature once. To take one natural sample and ideally to then continue growing that sample from that one extract in the lab for as long as I need it. And that way, the small sample I extract would have time to regenerate and the rest of it that is still intact would remain within the ecosystem without any disruption. Mm-hmm. That is like the ideal goal. And that is the the model that I'm working with. Um, when it is something that can't be cultured and it needs to be foraged, for example, lichens grow really, really slowly and therefore is even though I tried, it is really, really hard to grow them in the lab. Cause like it could take years, absolute years to grow like a small, small Petri dish. So those lichens that I, or organisms that I'm foraging, uh, particularly with lichens, um, the ethical foraging procedure is to never take a lichen off of its substrate. Um, So if you find a lichen on a rock, on a wall, on a tree, leave it. Mm -hmm. It needs to, that's its home, do not disturb. The way that it is, um, everyone kind of agrees is like the okay ethical version of doing that is if a large windstorm has come through and the lichens have fallen off of the trees and are now just chilling on the ground, that's fair game. (laughs) So I do a lot of like fallen branch, like picking up lichens there was a moment outside of uh, Central St. Martin's, there was this big tree right outside of the post office. And I was crouched down there for two hours, <laughs> picking up samples of lichen from the fallen <laughs> tree part. <barn. laughs> I got so many samples, but mm-hmm. like it is so important to like culture what you can and remain non-exploitive and then ethically harvest what you can't culture. Mm-hmm. I think those are two huge parameters because otherwise if we're just extracting then we're gonna have nothing. And how is that any better than any other extractive system that we have in place now?
0: Mm-hmm. Wow, I love that. <laughs> I can I can totally picture you under <laughs> that tree being so excited by all the fallen branches.
1: <laughs> totally. Um, <laughs> totally as in like full a squat. Uh-huh. Like it's just on the ground.
0: Yeah, I can see it. I can see it. <laughs> um yeah so I'm 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 conscious of time so I think we're nearing the end but um maybe do you have any um to wrap up because I feel like we've covered so much and it was super super interesting so thank you so much for sharing all of that do you have any um maybe you know something you want to finish on or like any final like tip or like summary of of what your kind of main action points would be for people um specifically if they're looking to help nature and biodiversity um and yeah, take action on everything you mentioned, basically.
1: Totally. I think um I think a lot of it stems from having a more mindful outlook mm-hmm. and practicing mindfulness as it relates to nature. Like a lot of people are opening up to the concept of meditation and having more mindfulness um with themselves, but also the more mindfulness you have around the, about the world around you, the more you realize how interconnected things are and how inescapable the cycles of this ecosystem are. And it really was uh, something that like kind of dawned on me when I started like thinking more mindfully about things of like, wow, if I take this lichen off this tree because I want it, which is a mindless action in that sense, because I'm only thinking of myself. I'm not thinking of the tree. I'm not thinking of the lichen. I'm not thinking of the general ecosystem at all. And that is quite selfish. And I think a lot of in human history and in human material, material science, material innovation history is very um, self-focused and short-sighted. And by practicing more mindfulness and really considering the impact of our actions from cradle to cradle and not just cradle to gate, which uh, is a really frustrating concept that a lot of things have been measured thus far cradle to gate. And that means that once it's in the consumer's hand, they stop tracking it. And so it's kind of like as if it isn't their problem anymore. So yes, this material may never biodegrade, but we measured it from cradle to gate. So once the biodegradation responsibility isn't on us as a brand or something like that. Mm -hmm. And that's super frustrating because you are responsible for the things that you put out into the world and the things that you generate. And it's important and imperative to be conscious of that and, you know, care about that. Um, So I think slowing down in that way and being more considered and considerate considerate, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, is really huge. Um, there was a book that I read that was really lovely, um, by Thich Han. pieces, every step that's, it's a very short book of short meditations. One of them was about, uh, eating an orange. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was really beautiful because the text asks you to consider every layer, layer as you're chewing every layer of that being all the way down to the molecules and to consider how special it is that those cellulose fibers were able to bind together to create the structure to encapsulate the seeds and have the fruit build and all of the sugars. And it it creates an actual orange that came from a tree is all really incredible and really uh, grounding. So I think if people are looking to do more things in the space, mindfulness can come into a lot of it and to help ground you in the reality of what is possible and what is around us and the potential that all of that holds in securing and repairing our future Mm -hmm. I think
0: oh amazing that's so beautiful I love that thank you for sharing and yeah it does make a lot of sense it really resonates with me I feel like it's also through these steps of um practices I guess that I've also um reinforce my connection with nature and kind of become more aware and I think it kind of you know opens up your empathy as well and and just like really taking a moment to acknowledge everything mm-hmm. that happens and and it, I think again also going back to this idea that we've so we've really for so long now thought of the world as us and then nature but actually we're part mm. of nature and so I think that you, being reminded of that connection is it's just so important so thank Dude, you. Totally. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, and then finally, um, who do you think I should interview next on this podcast? And what's the best book
1: you ever read and why? Best book I ever read? Um, well, at this moment, I would say it was Entangled Life by Merlin Aldridge.
0: I thought you would say that. Really? Yeah, it's my favorite. I think it's one of my favorites as well. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's like the perfect oh. balance of Science and exciting, but also written in such a beautiful and poetic way that it's not, you know, and not that science is boring,
1: but like not a boring science no, book. It's, it's not super... like um, claustrophobic. Exactly. It's really nice. Yeah. It's it's All very like in awe, like mm-hmm. a, in a voice of like awe. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Exactly.
1: So I would say I would say Entangled Life or The Gene by Siddhartha Mukherjee, um, that has a very similar tone that I think, and it was like about. Um, The history of genetics and the uh, impact that genes have on our health. And it like, it kind of parallels the discovery of DNA through like, it weaves it through the story of like, the author's actual like health struggles, but also, and then we'll like the next chapter will be like, and then Rosalind Franklin discovered the structure of DNA. And it's so cool. (laughs) So don't get intimidated. It's so cool. Um, Those are both fantastic. I think someone that would be really incredible to have would be uh, an ecology scientist, um, a friend of mine in particular would be super special and I'm sure she would love to come. So hopefully someone who is working in biodiversity and ecology uh, and architecture. So maybe I'll, um, I'll reveal her name at a later time <laughs> in case she isn't able to come and we don't want to embarrass. But I think someone like that could give a really interesting perspective about how to design for an ecosystem and do so mindfully and empathetically in a way that works
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. oh amazing and that does sound exciting so we'll definitely look into that (laughs) great thank you so much Leslie. that was such a good conversation thank you yeah thank Thank you you for your time oh (laughs)
1: i'm just so happy to hang out
0: (laughs) (laughs) me too it just it just feels nice like we had a nice (laughs) catch-up totally
1: totally like these these are normal conversations also (laughs) (laughs) yeah
0: yeah but th- to be fair that's also why I started the podcast because I've you know been having like bits of these conversations with like so many of my friends over the past few years and I'm like oh this is so exciting mm-hmm. so um yeah it's just really fun to record them and then hopefully some other people find it exciting and interesting as well and even if it's just us <laughs>
1: even if it's just us like, I'm here for it <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> same same <laughs> thank
1: you so much oh so happy to be part of it
0: Oh, thank you. And well, yeah, thank you so much. I won't take up uh, more of your time, but have a great rest of your day and um, see you super soon.
1: See you super soon.
0: Thank you, listeners. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Don't forget to check out the show notes and follow us on Instagram at Why We Care Podcast for all updates, more stories and ways for you to take action. And if you want to have the podcast, I would be super grateful if you could leave a little review on Apple or Spotify or maybe share it with a friend who you think might like it. Thank you so, so much in advance and see you next week. Thank you
1: for caring and sending you lots of love.